Thanks for tuning in to the Diabetes Dish Podcast brought to you by DiabeticLifestyle.com. Here's your host, Maureen Connolly. Maureen Connolly here, host of The Diabetes Dish, a podcast from DiabeticLifestyle.com, a vertical health digital property. Today's show is sponsored by our sister site, EndocrineWeb.com. Endocrine Web is a great patient and professional resource for hundreds of endocrine conditions, including hypothyroidism and diabetes. So the number of people suffering worldwide from diabetes is staggering. More than 380 million people are battling this disease. And 20 years from now, that number is expected to balloon to 600 million. An estimated 50 more, 54 million people die of diabetes and diabetes-related complications each year. And while diabetes has a genetic component, there are also many factors outside of this that may determine who gets this disease. Obesity, age, a bad diet, and now researchers are looking into a connection between bad gut bacteria and its connection to diabetes, as well as other diseases. With me today to discuss how microbes impact our overall health and risk for disease is Dr. Marie-Claire Arietta. Dr. Arietta is an assistant professor of microbiology at the University of Calgary. And her recent study connecting asthma in very young babies to a lack of key intestinal bacterial species in the gut was deemed a breakthrough in the field and was reported by dozens of news outlets around the world in 2015. She has been published in leading scientific journals such as Gastroenterology and Science Translation Medicine. And when she's not busy conducting experiments and writing about science and microbes, she's probably at kindergarten pickup or a play date with one of her two young children or she's doing podcasts like this one for her new book, Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World. The book was co-written with Dr. B. Brett Finlay and published by Algonquin Books in September, 2016. Dr. Ariada, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, so before we get into the nitty gritty of diabetes and microbes, can we talk a little bit about the title? Uh, you know, do you really want kids to eat dirt? No, no way. Uh, and, and we hope that by, you know, the first chapter, people understand that, that the title is not literal. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a kind of like a tongue-in-cheek play on words on, on really what our message is with this book, which is that one of the things that we should be doing um, when raising our children is to relax a little bit about hygiene. Uh, and that's not the only thing. Hygiene is just one of the things that affect uh, microbes when we're developing as, as children. But yeah, we shouldn't be feeding kids dirt. Okay, yeah, and I, it's a great, I mean, definitely an attention grabber. So, you know, good one on that. Um, so just maybe if you could explain in a little more detail about, uh, you know, what we're calling this hy hygiene hypothesis. I know um, a few years ago myself, I had reported on, uh, you know, the connection between our over-sanitized world and how it affects the microbes uh, in our body. And so I, I think it's fascinating. And if maybe since you're the expert, you can kind of go into a little more detail on what that is. Um, well, in general, we've, we've just learned a lot about the role of microbes um, in our gut that we did not know before. We used to think that microbes in our gut were important at helping us digest certain fibers and maybe making a couple of vitamins, and, and that was that. We never thought of, of microbes that had actually playing the critical role that they do, and it's until about five to ten years ago that we realized how critical they are for our physiology, especially early in life. 
So we know, for example, that microbes, they help our immune system mature. Um, and uh, without proper exposure to microbes in the early in life, the immune system becomes sloppy. Uh, so it's not, it's not surprised that, that um, this lack of exposure early in life is now being associated with immune diseases. Diabetes is one of them, but there's many other ones like asthma, obesity, which has also a, an immune as well as a, as a metabolic component as well. But uh, microbes do more than that even. I mean, we, we're learning now that they are key decision makers in the way we store um, calories, the way we store them and the way we use them as well. And they're also involved in, in brain development and in, in very important aspects of our behavior. So microbes do a lot more than what we used to think. So if you have a child, you know, out on the playground, um, we've been taught, you know, okay, you're back inside, come wash your hands right away, must get rid of the dirt, uh, whatever else, you know, you might have encountered. Uh, so tell, what's, what are your thoughts about that? Is, you know, is it a good thing that, yeah. yeah, I mean, hand washing is without a doubt a great measure to prevent disease, but the research on hand washing has clearly shown that the only effective times to wash our hands is to do it after we use the washroom, uh, before we eat or before we make and serve food, if we have been playing or in contact with someone that is sick or if we have been for whatever reason in contact with, with animal waste or decomposing food or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Washing a kid that has just been outside playing with dirt really has no influence in, in preventing disease. Um, of course, there's exceptions to that. If, if children have been playing in a place where there's garbage uh, or they encounter garbage um, before, before you thought about just taking them somewhere else. Um, if they are playing in a sandbox, because the sandbox potentially could have animal waste, that makes sense. But normally, just, just being dirty, just, just, uh, just looking a little bit uh, unclean is not a good reason to, to wash them up. And, and it just seems that nowadays people are washing their, their children constantly at the first speck of dirt. And that's something that, that really has no benefit. In fact, it's, we're learning that it's the opposite. Yeah, and that's what was going to be my next question. So there's no benefit, but in fact, there may even be an advantage. Exactly. Um, and again, this comes from hygiene, but it comes from other, other you know, things that happen throughout um, infancy and childhood where microbes have a, have a role. Hygiene, again, is one of them. And then there's plenty of studies showing that kids that are born and raised in farms, for example, they are um, significantly protected from asthma, allergies, and obesity as well. And so, uh, it's, been, it's been shown that it's not just the fact that these kids are more active, because of course they're outside more and they're more active, but they have shown experimentally that it's some of the microbes that they encounter by being outside. Hmm. So when you encounter the microbes, do you have to, um, I guess for those of us who haven't studied microbiology, you know, are we talking like, so you put your fingers in your mouth and that's how it gets into your gut or do they get absorbed by your skin? And then once they are in your body, like what are they doing to help you? Um, well, the, the, the root of uh, transmission, if you may, the way you get them in, it's usually, um, it's usually through, through the mouth. And for children, you don't really have to do anything about it. I mean, it's, it's, 
just natural the kids are going to put their hands everywhere including their mouth so mm -hmm. it's not that you need to remind them you should be you know licking your hands or anything like that or just, up their just nose. allowing <laughs> yeah just allowing regular play and allowing their their norm their normal innate behavior is is sufficient because if you're a, if you're a parent you know that you don't really have to do much kids are experts in getting dirty uh, in fact you have to sort of get them get them to stop doing that um, so so yeah it's it's just a matter of, of um, letting them be children and as for the second part of the question certain bacteria not all of them but certain bacteria in our gut especially the ones that live in in the bottom most part of our gut known as the large intestine or, or the colon they really are in constant interaction with our own cells with our immune system they produce substances that are known to be anti-inflammatory substances they are involved in in the training of very important cells of our immune system that not only do they get trained by the bacteria in the gut but these cells, they actually travel to other portions and other organs in our body to transmit this information. So there really is a, an immune cell school, if, if you may call it that way, that happens in the gut. And it is never more important than during childhood. Wow. Okay. And, and so to get on the topic of diabetes, um, type 1 diabetes, as you mentioned in your book, is one of the most you know common metabolic disorders, as we know, in children and young adults. And uh, the prevalence of type 1 has doubled in the past 20 years and set to double again by 2020, which is just sort of, you know, daunting. Uh, yes. And so you go on to say that the microbiota, is that how you say it, of children with type 1 yeah. diabetes is yeah, different um, than, the, uh, than compared to people who don't have, or children or adults who don't have type 1, it's less diverse and less stable. And I guess the first yeah. question I was hoping you could explain for our listeners is, um, how does this impact our health and um, are these differences present before a person's diagnosed with type 1? So is there a way to kind of yeah. say that? Okay. Exactly. So and I think your last question is the most important one because there's mm -hmm. many diseases um, where, where there have been reports that, that the microbiota or the microbiome, which is another word to, to mm -hmm. define this large community of microbes in, in our gut especially, that is different between patients and healthy people. But when you look at those reports, it's impossible to know whether this change in, in microbiota caused or helped to, to cause the disease, or if it's the disease itself, usually it's something like diabetes, that, that it's accompanied with metabolic changes and immune changes, that, that the disease caused the change in, in the microbiota. Uh, so it's kind of like the chicken and, and the egg kind of situation. It's kind of hard to tell. But with diabetes type 1, there's been really good studies um, where they have followed children um, before they get disease. So they follow them from babies all the way on, and they have found important changes in their gut microbiota before they develop diabetes, even before um, they start showing some of the immune changes that happen before their pancreas is affected. 
Wow. So it seems that for diabetes type 1, there was a really, really interesting study that was done in uh, comparing two towns in, in Europe. One in uh, Finland that is, has some of the highest indices of, of type 1 diabetes in the world, and another town in Western Russia who actually has a very low incidence of diabetes, but their genetic background is somewhat similar and, you know, geographically they're, they're not that far apart. So they compare those two populations to try and understand what was different. Of course, Finland is a much more industrialized place uh, than this particular town in Russia. And they followed hundreds of, of children in, in both places and it was really interesting that only the Finnish kids that ended up developing um, diabetes had some important and clear changes in their mm -hmm. gut microbiome early on. Wow. Now this study which was a, a pretty you know seminal study in, in the world of, of type 1 diabetes doesn't really tell us exactly what is causing this change in microbiota is probably not just one thing because they looked at different things. They looked at, you know, C-sections and, and breastfeeding and all sorts of things. So, so we don't know exactly what causes it, but from other studies we know that antibiotic use early on is associated with the development of uh, type 1 diabetes. We also know that C-sections are associated with uh, type 1 diabetes. Um, and of course there's also a genetic component to it. Most of these diseases are not a disease that are caused just by one factor, but they are what we call multifactorial diseases where the environment and the microbiome is part of the environment plays a role, but also our own genes. And it seems that for type 1 diabetes, um, there also needs to be a genetic predisposition to it. And, and uh, it's both things connect and happen at the same time that someone develops this, this horrible disease. Right. And so, I mean, I guess the kind of, you know, unfortunate thing is obviously if your child is suffering from an awful ear infection, you know, you're, you're, my antibiotics are your first line of defense, right? Um, to get rid of, of a, a serious bacterial infection. And so you're going to give your child the antibiotics to get her well, him or her well. But um, is there something, I mean, I realize overuse is a problem. And it seems like in the past, you know, five, seven years, doctors have gotten very attuned to being a lot more conservative about prescribing antibiotics. But when yeah. you do have to give your child an antibiotic, is giving them a probiotic something that's going to help? Yeah, so far that's the recommendation. Um, it's it's somewhat of an empirical recommendation um, based on other probiotic data. But the issue with probiotics, even though we do recommend them throughout the book and, and, and most doctors agree with us, uh, they do seem to help, but they could be a lot better. And the issue with probiotics is that the species of bacteria or other microbes that are used in probiotics are not necessarily the best ones we could be using. And the reason for that is just that this field is it's just so new. Like up until five years ago, we really did not know which bacterial species were the ones that seem to be involved with, with some of these diseases. So what we think is going to happen in the, in the next 10 to 20 years is that there will be next what they call next generation probiotics. They're going to get a lot better. They're going to be regulated because they're not regulated at the moment. But as for now, the recommendation is yes, when your child needs to get antibiotics, of course, give them 
and antibiotics, supplement them with probiotics. Use a probiotic that has been shown to work in the pediatric population. Talk to your doctor about this and give them during the antibiotic and after as well. Um, Diet is also very important. Make sure that your child during the course of antibiotics and after is, is um, eating lots of fiber and vegetables and fruits and, and things like that are supposed to be good to the diversity of, of the microbiota. Um, so yeah, those are the recommendations that, that we can give for now. Okay. And so do the same differences show up in people with type 2 diabetes, a change in the microbiota? Is it? No, not necessarily, mm -hmm. but this also... Um, has to do with the fact that the, the population of, of people that get type 1 diabetes is different than the one that gets type 2 diabetes. So usually it's children that, that get type 1 diabetes, not necessarily, but for the most part. With type 2 diabetes, is, is usually the adult population, although it's starting to happen much sooner. But the microbiome of children versus adults it, is quite different. Um, so just because of that, you wouldn't be able to find the same, the same differences between, um, mm. between uh, two. The other reason also is that most of the studies that have looked at type 2 diabetes um, are studies like the one that I was talking about before where, where we're looking at a population that already has the disease versus a healthy population. So it's kind of tricky to know whether those changes in the microbiome were the same before the disease happened as well. Mm hmm Okay. And the word, is it butyrate? Butyrate? Or is that how you say it? Butyrate. Yeah. Butyrate? Okay. So that comes up a lot in the chapter on diabetes. And I was hoping you yeah. could explain, now that I know how to pronounce it, um, what it is and why it's so important mm -hmm. to our health. Well, butyrate is one of these uh, great things that gut bacteria make for us. So gut bacteria, one of the main reasons that they're there is to digest plant-derived uh, fibers that we cannot digest. We do not have the enzymes to digest most of the stuff that comes in vegetables and fruits, and that's what bacteria are there for. And they do it through a process called fermentation. It's like if you had a bioreactor inside of your gut, and they, they ferment all this for us. And, uh, you know, all the chemical reactions that, that, that uh, explain this fermentation process, they end up in the production of butyrate and other um, forms of, of uh, fermentation products. So butyrate is, is a type of what we call short-chain fatty acids. There's a few more. There's not just butyrate. But butyrate uh, is a really important one. It has been shown to do lots of things. So it's a very strong anti-inflammatory metabolite, meaning that it will dampen the immune response in the gut and in other places. And what has been shown in animal models of diabetes, for example, and this has to be done in animals, of course, because it cannot be done in humans, is that um, using bacteria that produce more butyrate can prevent or reduce the severity of, of the diabetes in, in these animals. It also has been shown in patients with diabetes that they have a reduced production of butyrate in their gut as well. And so I guess that's why we're always, I mean, part of the reason the fruits and vegetables, you know, play a big role then in our overall health, but I, I didn't, never knew about the butyrate connection. So we're, we're just helping our bodies to, to produce anti-inflammatory properties, I guess. Yeah, it's just, mm -hmm. um, you know, nature is, is, is quite wise and it's really neat um, 
to to understand it from from the scientific point of view because here are um, a whole bunch of, of bugs that are digesting food for us and we're the ones giving them food so that's why they're there but in turn they're making all these substances that are really good for us and of course it's, it's through our modern lifestyle changes that we're altering this this balance of microbes in our gut and that of course is altering the type of of products that they make for us that are really good and butyrate is one of them hmm. So if there are good things to eat, do you have a kind of a hit list of foods that people should steer clear of that, I guess, promote yeah, bad bacteria? Yeah, refined products and refined sugars. And this is when our, our research really just becomes the, very in common with, with what nutritionists have been saying all along. Um, I think this microbiome field is just adding a little bit more explanation to, to what it is. But really it is about eating lots of plant-derived products, reducing the amount of meat, and eliminating, if possible, refined flours and refined sugar sugars from, from your diet. Uh, we did not evolve very well to digest these foods, uh, so we should really try and, and reduce their, their intake, especially in childhood. So childhood is the best time where we can uh, really set those eating habits, a varied food, including vegetables and fruits in absolutely every meal, including snacks, um, all sorts of, of vegetables and fruits, and also substituting all the you know refined carbohydrates like white rice and, and white flowers, white wheat, with the, the whole variety of, of them, brown rice and whole wheat and, and so on. So it's pretty much the same thing that nutritionists have been telling us for a while. Yeah, and so, so I guess I'd love to give the listeners a visual on what happens inside their gut when they, they are consuming large you know, volumes of sugar or white flour. You could just... Yeah, so it's interesting because what the food industry has done is that it has removed those components in, in the food itself that were digested by the microbes. And it's only leaving the components that we humans or any other mammal can digest with our own enzymes. What that means is that when you're just eating, you know, a Coke and, and a bowl of white rice, for example, everything is going to get digestive in the first portion of our gut. And barely nothing is going to be left over for the microbes that live down in our gut, the one that makes all these important components for our immune system. Um, so we need to, whenever we're eating, especially as children, we need to think about feeding up, also feeding our microbes, and knowing that microbes cannot digest all these refined foods. They need fiber fiber for their survival. Yeah, I could just hear myself at dinner tonight, you know, time to feed the microbes. <laughs> right? Yeah, I do that. And in fact, it was the, one of the best things that, that I did to get my children to eat their vegetables without much protest. I mean, they still protest, of course, they're children, but they kind of know it as a fact now that it's not necessarily for them. It's for this huge community of microbes that lives inside of them, and they're in charge of them. They have to feed them, and, and I think children respond well to that type of attitude. Yeah, I love that. So, you you know, the white rice and the Coke um, aren't doing anything to help your body, but can you explain how they're harming your body? 
Yeah, well, in many ways. One of the ways is they're starving these microbes. They're not really feeding the microbes that are supposed to help in your metabolism and your immune system. The other thing that they do when you eat food that is so high in, in, in carbohydrates that are so easily to digest is that you um, spike your glucose levels really, really quickly in your blood. And what that does is that that is a signal to your pancreas to shoot out a lot of insulin. And if you do that over and over and over again, um, your cells, the ones that eventually uptake all these sugar all throughout the, the body, are going to just get used to all that insulin and they're going to get resistant to the insulin. And that is how diabetes starts in the mm -hmm. body. So what we need to avoid is to have those super high spikes in sugar and insulin. And something that is really interesting and we're learning now is that we get similar spikes, super fast spikes of insulin also when we drink artificial sweeteners. The mm -hmm. ones that are supposed to, you know, the ones that are supposed to give us, you know, zero calories. It seems that when our body senses that sweetness sensation in our in our oral Yay. mucosa, in our mouth, and in our intestines, um, it seems that uh, uh, there's uh, there's a physiological response that happens that also leads to to, to insulin resistance later on. Um, so now there's more and more people saying, no, you should just be reducing the amount of sweetness that you're exposed to, and you should really eliminate artificial sweeteners from your menu as well. So in the book you talk about metformin, which is an oral diabetes medicine used by many people who have type 2, two to lower their blood sugar. And you say yeah. research about the drug saying that uh, an international study found that patients taking metformin had a better microbiome profile, which I find kind of cool. Um, can you just fill us in about this? Well, yes, basically. So there's, there was a recent, recent international study a couple of years ago, and that's exactly what it showed, that, that type 2 patients that were under metformin, they had a different microbiome than those that were not taking the blood. And um, this included uh, an increase in, in those bugs that made uh, butyrate, one of these short-chain fatty acids, which um, are known to, to not only help with the immune system, but it seems to also help decrease um, the, the levels of glucose. Um, so it just seems that, that microbes in our gut play a role even in, in, in the type of drugs that, that we take and, and how we metabolize them. So uh, there needs, we need definitely more than this just one study, but it seems that uh, metformin for a mechanism that, that we still do not understand may be beneficial to our microbiome and of course uh, to our metabolism as well. Well, this has been an enlightening discussion, and I, I think it'll be interesting to see where microbiome research takes us in the next decade, uh, especially when it comes to diabetes prevention. So uh, thanks again to my guest, Dr. Marie-Claire Arietta, co-author of Let Them Eat Dirt. We'll see you all next time. Thank you.